Welcome to episode 280 of the No Pristinium podcast, the voice of everything immersive. I'm your host, Noah Nelson, coming to you from the No Pro headquarters, aka the kitchen table here in Los Angeles. This week on the show, we're continuing our three-part series, XR Live, Theater and VR, with episode two. Now, uh, if you're just joining us for the first time, we're taking a deep dive look at the emerging world of virtual reality theater by bringing in a raft of incredible professionals to discuss their experiences in this emerging art form. We also have two guest hosts this week. One is executive editor Catherine Yu, who often pinch hits here on the show. And also we have creative technologist and author Stephanie Riggs, who wrote The End of Storytelling, The Future of Narrative in the Storyplex. Along for the ride, each of us is taking on a panel of three. Here's how the rotation works this time. Catherine's up first with Marinda Botha, Beth Cates, and Ari Tarr. Then I come along with Dasha Kittredge, Brandon Powers, and S.B. Proctor. And then Stephanie comes along with Brendan Bradley, Tim Kashani, and Deirdre Lyons. Uh, if you want the full uh, bios on everybody, I want you to check out episode 279, the beginning of this series, and that will give you the breakdown on who is who. But because so many of you are coming along for the full ride, didn't want to take up too much time this time. All right, that and I'm racing to get to a meeting. Uh, <laughs> that's how it goes sometimes. All right, uh, coming on this week, we have a brand new uh, in-kind sponsor, our friends over at Yes Please Coffee. Uh, literally our friends. Uh, Tonks, the owner, is a, a good friend of mine. Uh, we, for years uh, in, in the pre-pandemic times, we would... Uh, run into each other on Saturday mornings at Dinosaur Coffee here in Los Angeles and then spend, you know, a, a whole bunch of time, as much time as we had, going over the events of the week uh, because we're both news junkies and political junkies and uh, just uh, excellent, excellent uh, conversation over good coffee. Uh, that has transformed into us doing that on Saturday mornings on FaceTime. Uh, we don't do it every week, but uh, <laughs> we've lost like, I think we lost three hours once. There's a lot to talk about. Um, and uh, I'm a talker and Tony's a talker, so it takes a while. Uh, <laughs> anyway, Tonks has this wonderful company called Yes Please, and it is uh, coffee shipped directly to you via the old trusty U.S. postal system. Uh, oh boy, we talked a lot about the postal thing when that was going down. Um, it's roasted right here in Los Angeles. Uh, Tony's been in this business for years. And the fun thing about Yes Please is um, at the beginning of the company, uh, there was a full zine that came out. Now, uh, you know, <laughs> the economy being what it is, there is this uh, kind of this, this bookmark uh, that comes out. Uh, it's got a playlist on one side, and I'll actually be able to link that playlist in the show notes because it's also on their website. This week's playlist is called Night Shift. It's curated by a cat named uh, Jim Baroud, uh, and uh, he says, sounds for nighttime working, driving, or other debauchery. It kicks off with Nine Inch Nails' The Lovers, which was literally the last song I listened to before I opened up the package. I was like, my God, you got Aphex Twin in here, Portis head jack white uh underworld tom york even youtube pops up with one of their obscure b-sides uh youtube 
YouTube gets into some weird stuff. Some of my friends know this. Um, and on the back, uh, Tony's got a column. Uh, uh, this week uh, is a story from his time working at FAO Schwartz uh, and just just delightful all around. Um, and they are now sending me beans. Uh, and uh, it was just Tony was like, what's your bean situation? Last time we were talking, I was like, you know, like I can always use some. And he's like, let me send you some. I was like, well, then let me talk about you on the podcast. So that's how that goes. If you've got something <laughs> that, that I rely upon for survival. Want to make a deal? I'm listening, man. <laughs> you know, uh, let's talk about the hookup. Uh, there are things. There are things. Life's expensive. Life's expensive. And our Patreon backers uh, make it possible for me to pay those expenses. You know, electricity, rent, all the all the not fun stuff. Uh, you can join them at patreon.com slash no proscenium. Uh, we had no new backers on the Patreon this time, so thank goodness for the beans. Uh, our sustaining backers are the folks who really go the extra mile to keep us together. And they are Ari Herstand, Brittany, Elaine, Emily Gillette, Lonnie Hanson, Paul F., Mark Balthazar, Samuel Mystery, Sydney Guillory, and Jan Budman. And now, with all that done, let's get you into this episode. <laughs> Hello, everyone. This is Catherine Yu, the executive editor of No Persinium, and we're talking theater and virtual and augmented reality on the podcast today. And we've got some amazing guests, such as... Hi, I'm Beth Cates. I am the creative director of Playground Studios and an XR theater maker and designer. I'm Marina Buerta. I'm an actress, voice artist, and puppeteer based in South Africa, currently working in live VR theater. I'm Ari Tar. I'm the lead host and VR acting consultant for Adventure Lab and an XR content producer and founder. So what we're going to be tackling next in this discussion, which I, I feel I'm just, I'm so excited to talk about this. Uh, what skills from other live performance disciplines translate into VR? How are you bringing in your puppeteering background, your improv background, what you've done um, in real life immersive theater or on the stage? And then kind of the second part of that is how have you evolved your other practices in response to doing work in VR? Uh, anybody feel free to jump on in. Oh my <laughs> it is such a beast. I, I, I'll, I'll start um, because I just recently finished a 375-page thesis about this. Wow. Um, Congratulations, <laughs> my <you>. word. <laughs> um, yeah, no, which, which was actually really exciting to be able to look at both these emerging practices and my historical practice. Um, I think. So I'm, I am historically a, a lighting set and video or projection designer for theater. And I've done a lot of devised work and I've done a lot of immersive work. Um, and there were so many pieces about all, all the forms of theater creation that got brought into VR. So 
um, it was the the crafting of three dimensional space and moving people, not just actors but audience as well, moving people around and and how do you do that and how do you create a space and in the case of VR it's a, a world space uh, and I've done everything from very very small spaces, intimate spaces to entire right Mount Olympus, entire worlds, um, and so it's crafting that from all the scenographic points of view. So both from, from lighting, from, from actual physical construction of the environment uh, to texture and what the materials are and what, wh- how that translates to the audience, how it contributes to the dramaturgy of the story. So all of these tools that I've always used in theater to, to tell the story um, were have feel like they're heightened in VR because we are immersed in a way that we are not even in immersive theater. We're not immersed in the way that we are in VR. And, and that has been really exciting to dig into and to find those moments of like, Oh my gosh, I'm doing like what I do in the, in the physical theater. Um, But I'm doing it here, sitting at my desk, going in and out of my headset and talking to people from across the world and figuring out what it feels like for them. Um, So there's been, there's been a huge amount of that kind of work. Um, And, and, and then on top of that, the devised, kind of collaboration where then actors feedback and go, oh, yes, no, it totally feels like I'm standing in the light here. Um, so that all works and figuring those things out like we like we used to do once upon a time when we were in the theater <laughs> together. Um, yeah, I, I'll let other people. There's so much. There's so much. Yeah, so I'll echo uh, what's already been said. There's so much overlap between the skills you have for in real life theater practicing um, and working in VR. I'll go specific in saying being a trained puppeteer, uh, the skills you use to manipulate marionettes in real life transfer well into VR. So when you manipulate a marionette, you hold wooden controllers in your hands and there are strings attached to the controllers and the same strings are also attached to the limbs of the marionette. So by moving your wooden controllers, you influence the movement of the dangling puppet below. So for me, this type of dynamic translates directly into VR where you use controllers in your hands to animate your avatar's movement and locomotion. So there's a constant duality present that uh, you as a performer should be aware of. You are very aware of the physical controls in your hands, yet you project your attention and performance into the digital space. But that duality is present in both mediums, in real life puppet manipulation and controlling your digital avatar. Um, I'll add one more and then I'll give it over to Ari because there's really so much overlap. Um, I'll say that voiceover skills translate very well to this new medium. Uh, Via avatars, you can visually become any creature your imagination can cook up. Any gender, be completely removed from anthropomorphic qualities, be as far removed from what you as an actor looks like. But unless you use voice modification software, your voice will still sound like you, like a human. Your voice is a very effective tool you can use as it provides an immediate sense of immersion for the VR participant when he or she hears a human voice speaking to them live in real time. And 
obviously in general, voiceover skills are very important. How you infuse the words with meaning and emotion, your character's rhythm, cadence, pace of speech and accent, all of this remains important in VR performances. Okay, so there are a lot of skills that um, I got. I got very lucky early on in my life. I was raised in circus and vaudeville and had exposure to some European devised theater and and really interesting mask and puppetry. And I, f- I feel that we've always been in conflict lot the, with the finance model of live theater. It's just really hard to get people all paying to be in one room for one night to witness one thing that happened. And there have been in my life, I've seen some of the most amazing, magical performances that are completely transformative and the audience can't be the same after they've seen it. The problem is that there was no way to share this experience beyond a few hundred people every few months and maybe a few thousand people total. So uh, since I've been a young geek reading Snow Crash and seeing the, 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 the idea of, of racting, mm-hmm. I got so excited that this, this was, showed the possibility to expose people around the world to this kind of work without the, the limitations of a physical space. Um, you know, and for an immersive theater production, having a warehouse in downtown LA or New York is nearly impossible and can, and can, and has ruined many a producer, unfortunately. So when I got to theater school and really got to delve into theater history, I was so excited to realize that these kinds of skills go back to the very origins of, of human performance. I think you had a really great episode with Pete Billington created Wolves in the Walls and and he was talking about both how his first experience um, with Then She Fell, he, he wished that he could, he could scale this to people. And I, I felt that same elation the first time I, I encountered VR. Um, but, but learning about theater history, this all goes back to transformative religious ritual. And I really do feel like all of these different skills that we're talking about, you know, I, I got to study... Um, like, like, like Beth, I studied some multimedia production design uh, w- with theater. I was lucky enough to, to like Miranda, study um, Japanese puppetry and mask work as well as like a comedian mask work. And I think what there's been a, a course of decisions through theater history um, where you've had to make compromises in the kind of expression you can do for finance just to get people in the, in the room. And I think that we are now unbound by those physical limitations to now we can reach back into our deep past and pull on these these essential skills of transmitting empathy through presence that is all of a sudden opening up just barely this this whole brand new vista and i'm really really excited for for what the future holds can I quickly jump in there before? Um, yes, <laughs> do it. To Beth, just to say about mask work, because I'm also so excited about the possibility and the potential of that in VR. Um, we've seen a little bit of that with the underpresents. They use this sort of mask idea in, in their show um, where they wear a mask and they play with those masks. But I really do think that it is an untapped avenue to explore within VR performance spaces. Yeah. Um, a mask is a mirror 
you see what you want to see. It's a frame. It draws attention to itself, to what's inside of it. And a mask is also a door for me, um, a gateway to a different realm, um, one that is removed from the environment or world you are occupying at the moment. And all of that, to me, describes VR in general. So I think it's a really exciting concept to, to delve into. Yeah, and I would like to just jump on something there too that Ari said um, that that I feel really strongly and I think is impacting um, my my traditional theater practice too. Um, this this being unbound by by physical limitation. Um, one of the things that and I talk about this a lot, and one of the things that I find so exciting and so promising about VR is this um, liberation from physics and by liberating us from physics so the ability to fly the ability to traverse space and time um, opens up the storytelling possibilities for us as makers which means it also opens up other worldviews and other ways of perceiving the world and each other and our place in it um, beyond anything that we've ever had the capacity to do before. And that is, it feels like as we look very closely at, you know, inclusion and what who's not at the table and what stories haven't been told it it feels like it is an incredibly rich place to be to start to crack that open and really explore with each other Mm, it feels like it it really democratizes storytelling in a way if we can look past the the barrier of entry being the gear uh, Mm -hmm. if, if we can get past that it's definitely that it's it's i mean for me as, as well, the, the pandemic um, and this year has been terrible like it is for everyone. But I've constantly been working and connecting and meeting new people. Uh, the people I'm speaking to now being a, a prime example. Um, so my life has been re- really rich this year because of VR. So it's really an exciting time to become involved in this medium just mm-hmm. for that. I wanted to address the second part of your question, Catherine, and also what you were mm-hmm. saying about mask, Miranda. It's so great to hear you echoing that because sometimes mm. I feel like I'm yelling into a void about <laughs> mask work. <laughs> um, no, let but, it all out here. This is this uh, is what absolutely. we want to hear. Tell me about puppets. <laughs> Tell me about masks. Tell me about improv. Tell me about flying through space and time. <laughs> uh, okay. All right. Let's, let's bring it. No, I just um, so so gear is is still a limitation until we have headsets that include both eye tracking and mouth tracking coming out next year. Um, so at Adventure Lab, we work with the Quest. And so all I'm really, all the data I'm able to get from audience members to respond to is their head movement and their hand movement. And uh, that's it because we don't have any sensors inside the head. So essentially they're all wearing masks all the time. Um, so I've come up with some strategies to figure out how to maximize the data that I can get from them. But the the mask training I've had has been so helpful because what it really is meant to do is refine your sense of embodied empathy. And, and what I mean by that is what we forget in this sort of 2D text world, some place, some people call it what pancake gaming or, or, or social media or whatever, is that there is so much processing going on under the hood in our brains where we are taking so much data by proximity of the humans around us and micro 
micro uh, facial expressions and movements from from their body and their and their breathing that we are using the uh, on a subconscious level to tell us how we feel about the the people and the situation and mask work is essentially a way to unlock and, and open up that hood and see what actually is going on underneath so I, even though I'm very limited in the, in the data that I get, where our, our experience is designed specifically for the Quest, we can use other headsets as well, the, I feel like because I've, I've honed that sense of empathy through, micro, through, through basically micro data, I've been able to really get a strong sense of empathy without, them, without an audience member explicitly telling me where they, where they secretly want to go but don't have permission don't know how to ask for permission to, to, to go there, I'm able to interpret that from the small amount of data that I can get. But ways that I help myself um, that, that I've had to get around it, because everyone is basically wearing a mask is at the kinds of questions that I ask um, are seemingly innocuous, but they're sort of made to get a subconscious reaction. So I can tell from their vocal tone and from their unconscious body movement, okay, this is, this is the kind of direction that they want to move in. This is the kind of person they are. This is how they respond to a certain kind of emotional prompt. And then I can craft their experience and their specific show around that data. Mm. To add to that, to that uh, how my practice has evolved because of the new medium, um, your acting performance choices are slightly larger than life. Uh, you use body and gesture as a, a little bit more. Um, again, it is almost like manipulating a puppet. You overemphasize movements slightly to ensure that the viewer reads it or sees it and understands your meaning behind the gesture. Uh, you may also do it a little bit s slower, um, but I'm talking incrementally. You adjust it slightly. Um, it's slightly bigger, your performance. Yeah. Um, again, going back to the, what Pete Billington said about um, wolves in the walls is that this really takes us back to this the 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 Ur storyteller the back back in ancient times and how they would take this this sacred text and it was about an oral tradition where you customize what you are doing for that specific audience for that specific night. And yes, and, and Marina, you actually touched on something really true there. It's part of the magic, being able to slow down your breath and mm -hmm. your movement, especially with puppetry, so that subconsciously the audience does not even notice that they're starting to breathe along with the, the masked character or the puppet, mm -hmm. and that they are building a, a physical rapport on, on, a, on a deeper level than, than a conscious level that, that allows you to as as you know, as, as Pete and Janine Bullov have said, Willett have said, sort of earn that trust, earn the the relationship first, so that you can then take them somewhere magical. Mm -hmm. But you're talking about um, partly about the rhythm that you can create in the storytelling, and I'm sure Beth can can also um, uh, talk about this. How other tools um, um, enhance that as well, as you're completely in control of, of, of the rhythm of your storytelling when you need to rush it or slow it down. And uh, you just need to establish that initial rapport with your audience. And then it's your job just to, to keep the, the feather in the air or the ball in the air, whatever uh, metaphor you want to use for the story. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I'll say one more thing that, that translates and then, um, or have, how, how I have evolved, and then I'll give it to, to Beth if she likes. Um, this is really a minor point, but you can sit down while acting in VR. 
um, which provides <laughs> it's it might not a minor like, point. You could rest. <laughs> well, um, it provides a bit of comfort when you're doing quite long performances, like we we are doing an alien rescue, which is going to run a, an hour and fifteen minutes. Apparently, um, we're still finishing uh, the second part of the show, um, but. It does depend on the scene. For some scenes, I would stand up, but other uh, scenes that are, are less action orientated, um, uh, where the energy is slower and more conducive to sitting down, I would sit down, which is obviously something you can't do in theater or, or in, a, in a movie. Um, you can sit down while your avatar is still standing. Yeah, and these are all really, I, I know as I continue to meld the practice of the physical world and the virtual space, um, playing with those things and the physicality of, of the performer um, and, and how that physicality then impacts the sonography and how the sonography is impacting the audience. Like these, this becomes a really uh, rich uh, Venn diagram here. Um, and I, I was actually just thinking about more things that I'm trying to move forward in the physical world. Um, before the pandemic hit, um, we had a plan. So I work with a, a small but very long running and very important theater festival in, in Canada called the Blythe Festival that has created over 150 new works of Canadian writing in the last 46 years. And we've been pushing the XR performance piece forward there primarily through through projection but experimenting with doing live projection with improvised performance there's a long history of devised performance there and one of the things that we were planning to do before we weren't allowed to gather anymore um, was a piece called airborne which is about a female pilot and my plan so it was I was co-creating the piece with three other artists and and my plan is one of the lead artists on it was to actually devise a lot of this work while having the actors in VR headsets as pilots flying through the region that we were performing about, which was that local region to, to Blythe, and to see what we would be able to generate if the actor was actually piloting a plane while trying yeah. to create this piece of theater. Um, and so we will do it when we're all allowed back together in the room. We will do that. But in the meantime, what we're actually pushing there um, is we're developing a small motion capture studio so that we can continue um, the place-based work. So a lot of the work there is generated, um, you know, we'll actually go out to the location that we're creating a play about and we'll do improvisation work there and we'll do, um, we'll do image capture there. But what we're, what I'm curious about is actually taking motion capture out into the field, so to speak, Ooh. or literally like actually going into barns and going into very specific locations. Like there's an a, actual field. Like an actual field. <laughs> oh yeah. My goodness. Yeah, there's a there's um there was a there's a a piece of history that lives out there. Um there was a, a family back in the 1880s, the Donnellys, who were massacred. And it's a story that we've told again and again because it, it, it encompasses so much about humanity that we're trying to figure out. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um 
And so what we're what we're intending to do is to take the motion capture suits and go out to some of those important locations and dig into the story, capture the embodied performance, and bring it into the virtual space um, and see what we can do. So all of this virtual work is is impacting that physical work that we know will will be able to continue going into the future. And we're really curious about what the possibilities are there. Um, and what does it mean? What does it mean to capture a virtual performance in a very real place, you know, while we'll also do LIDAR capturing of the environment and bring that into the virtual space? And, and there's just the interplay and the 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 crosstalk between all of these worlds feels really, um, uh, really rich with possibility and, and many questions. Like this is all, we're kind of all inventing this, like all of us here in this conversation, a lot of it we don't know before we start too. So it's like leaping into the unknown um, in a super exciting way. That sounds fantastic and uh, a really good stopping point for at least this conversation, although there are many, many more conversations to be had about all of these things. So um, thank you, Ari and Beth and Marinda, for joining us here today. And there's still so much more to come. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, everybody. Noah here again with our panel, with my panel. Uh, and that would be... Hi, everybody. I'm Espy. I'm the sound and new media artist. Hi, my name is Dasha Kittredge. I am an immersive theater and virtual reality performer and creative director at meta for You. I'm Brandon Powers. I'm a creative director and choreographer creating work across virtual and physical spaces. The topic of this show is about what skills from other arenas and live performance disciplines translate to VR and how. For those of you who listened to our last segment, we got a little bit into this uh, last episode uh, when we kind of cracked into uh, the idea of mask work. And so I kind of wanted to start there uh, and uh, throw that out because uh, both SB and Dasha were talking about uh, mask work um, as it relates. So uh, Dasha, you started to kind of jump in before we, we, we went off into the finance thing. So maybe you can kind of kick us off here with what you've been finding as a performer in uh, The Underpresents, which ironically enough is a show kind of about masks on a certain level. Uh, about how That's true. Yeah. How, <laughs> how is this translating over for you? Yeah, I think it's the closest um, thing in terms of getting to know your avatar um, that I could if you wanted to try to do it in real space before you jumped into a headset, it would be a great uh, kind of training ground. Um, I think the things uh, would maybe with neutral mask, um, there's um, a mask that doesn't really look like it has much of an expression. Um, but if you tilt it certain ways, it can look sinister or happy or sad um, really with some very fine, just very, very small mo movements. And similarly, an avatar, um, it already has a, a build to it, and some of them are more neutral, and some of them have more kind of, of a character already on their face or an expression already on their face. So, um, like Commedia dell'arte masks, for instance, have very different expressions depending on which one you're wearing. 
Um, so it just, I, I would say it takes um, some practice and hopefully with someone, if you would be able to, um, to see like, you know, you'd expect maybe if you put your head down, it might look like you're more angry or something, but with certain avatars, it could be a surprise what happens when you make these subtle movements. So um, I think that's one of the really fun things to explore when you're beginning of um, just see what and how and, and hopefully maybe even be able to see yourself outside like in a 3D um, in a separated version or to record yourself or to work with someone. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's a really great tool to use in how to get up and running in terms of um, puppeteering a, an avatar. Espe, I wanted to toss to you because your insight into this is what kind of kicked uh, Dasha's, uh, Dasha's insight off uh, the last time we were together. Um, yeah, so when I when I first started going into alt space to prepare for the Black Imagination series, um, I remember going to different spaces and meeting different people and just like learning how to interact with objects or how to change my um, you know external look. And I remember coming across somebody who was talking to me about yoga in VR and they were, you know, they demonstrated, you know, here are like, you know, breathing in, adding a gesture, breathing out, um, and then just tracking their breath with their hands. And that is something in my own training that I've also done that, you know, as I'm, as I'm, sending the breath into different places in my body to be able to articulate or make things weightless. Um, in practice, in a practice mode, I am tracking that with my, with my hands so that I can be able to make that connection that here's where my energy is. And then being able to be able to do that um, in, you know, in the actual expression without having to to have that um to have that type of exercise but i thought it was very interesting that you could see the breath being expressed in vr even without even without the hands like it was it was very it 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 was just fascinating to watch them breathe in and breathe out and be able to make those gestures and it felt like you know, wow, okay, with the gestures, I can see where your breath is. But also without the gestures, I can still get a sense of where that is. Um, the particular the, the particular train training that I come from is called Margolis Method, which uses the principles of physics to be able to, um, to, be able to work with the body. So um, looking at, you know, mass and force, you know, action and reaction, um, just all of all of these things on how to how to play with the dynamics of the body that I was able to see, okay, this is something that's possible in this type of environment. And so working with the actors, you know, we focused a lot on breath as we were warming up. So finding ways to be able to um, not only just stretch and breathe, but then also to have exercises where they could pair off and be able to um, 
combine voice and gesture um, to just be able to ping pong back and forth. So, you know, it's how to say, yeah, and 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 like Dasha said, just the the articulation of the hands, the limitations that you know not all fingers are. Um, the thing, the fingers have a, a bit of a limited movement, but also like with the head, that that is something that is very, that's something that has a lot more range. And then being able to combine that with here are emojis for particular moments of expression, and then also you know being able to use the voice and combining all of that to really have an expressive character. Um, also reminding the actors that you know the same way that people people watch in the real world that people watching in VR is is you know you go to different events and whatnot and you see how people interact with each other and just seeing in a natural element how people respond to each other how they gesture um you know and to just make a note of you know just even within your own self how do you communicate with people in in VR so a huge part of it is like learning how to walk all over again, you know, really learning how the body works, um, how your breath works, um, how you can express yourself, but also being able to play with your environment as well, you know, being able to test out the physics of the environment that you're in, because that also informs um, the that informs the, the rules and the reality of which the story is taking place in. Um, a lot of times the, the joke is that, you know, you enter a new space in VR and the first thing you do is you pick up something and you throw it, you know, like what you're, you're also testing the limits of the, the environment that you're in. So being able to just work on your own body and then also work on how you are moving in various spaces is helpful. For the first time, I've I'm starting to like envision what a movement class in VR would look like, and I <laughs> I want to like jump into like alt space with you and and have you show me this like the, the breathing thing because I I have this sneaking suspicion that like once I see it, I'll like not be able to unsee it with other people. Like mm-hmm. it's it that's that's one of the always been the fascinating thing to me about acting training is like the first step is to teach you how to observe other people and all the little things folks do. Um, that's, that's where, that's where the weird powers of actors come from. Brandon, yeah. how, for, for you, what's, what's been, what's been translating over and is, is any of this conversation resonating? A thousand percent, especially as, uh, SB is talking about, um, breath, you know, for, for me, uh, my movement background is all rooted in breath and weight. And those are the two main pillars I bring to any conversation uh, with dancers or often even more so with uh, quote unquote movers, right? Or actors who move, um, who might have less traditional dance training. Uh, and if you really focus, as SB is saying, on this breath and how that connects to your weight, uh, you can really start to tell the story you want to tell with your body. Um, In a embodiment and performance course that I just taught at NYU this fall, uh, we were able to work 
both in Zoom and in VR, which was really exciting and get to see this exact translation process across um, seeing ourselves and the way we are used to seeing them and then seeing them in avatars. And the kind of key methodology that I find so useful in this space is known as Laban movement analysis. And that is a way of thinking about and describing movement um, using this idea called efforts. Uh, and so essentially each effort of which there is uh, about a dozen uh, tells you how to describe this movement. So for example, there's like a flick, which has its own sense of weight around it. And a flick has its own duration um, and sense of space, right? And so we use this methodology not only to allow us to understand how we're moving in accordance to our weight and our breath and the way we're moving it, and to get really, really specific about, oh, this is a flick versus a glide, uh, for example, but it also affords an opportunity for us as a creative team to now have a shared language, because that's something that's often a really big challenge in creating XR work, right? We all have different educations and backgrounds. So I love to work with my teams and teach them uh, Laban vocabulary. So then when I'm describing movement or describing a way a scene should feel, they understand what the heck I'm talking about. Because when I say, oh, it's a dance and it feels like X, I've had experiences where people have a completely different understanding of what that actually means. Uh, so that's one uh, methodology that I find to be extremely successful and then translates really nicely into avatars in a virtual space. Dasha, what have you found yourself leaning on in terms of uh, you know the classical training? Mm, well, I was a ballet dancer for almost 10, around 10 years. Um, so I definitely feel like I pull from that for sure. Um, but then also, I think this this form of um, acting in VR specifically, um, it needs some sprinkling in of things like, you know, uh, what Brandon is saying, like a flick or a extra, something that is creating your character, building your character, um, a, a unique character that has isms. Um, and if you're just kind of telling a story and you're not moving a lot, it can become boring quite quickly to watch you as a performer. So um, we as actors sometimes are afraid of, you know, indicating too much or being a little too uh, in real life of showing how you feel. Um, but actually in VR, it's very important to do that while you're telling the story and add little gestures, even if they are um, characterisms that like, you know, this character just tends to touch, touch their head more or likes to pick up objects more as they do, you know, this or that. Um, but you have to think about what's interesting to watch. Um, it's much more interesting to watch someone that has, that's doing a bit more uh, phys physically uh, while they're interacting with you versus, and it doesn't have to be um, a, a dance that's planned out. I mean, this can be all improv, um, but realizing that you are the entertainment uh, and the more that's in there, the better, I would say. Uh, I mean, I would say don't go overboard and, it should connect to what is happening. Um, but to get away from the idea that you could be, um, that indication uh, with movement is a bad thing. We've talked a lot about what folks have have brought in. I wonder, shifting gears a little bit here, have you found your practice evolving because of 
the technology, uh, be it, you know, shifting tactics or you find yourself exploring things that you hadn't before because the affordances you're being given have, have changed so much. Um, so I am interested in experimenting with spatial audio more in a VR space because it is, it is like creating an avoid where in the parameters to be able to make spatial audio exist in that space and it exists in the way that is simpler than it is in the real world, um, just due to you know architecture and infrastructure and the cost and travel and all of these other things. So I'm interested in playing with that more. And then the other part of that is playing around with continuing to explore the concept of maskus avatar, but for non-humanoid figures. In alt space, we we do have humanoid figures, and not alt space. Yes, in alt space, we have humanoid figures, but for spaces like VR chat, they can be more abstract, and so they can truly be more like a mask. And so, what does that look like? What does that mean for actors? And how can we make that into? story experiences i think brandon posted it some time ago and i I wish i remember the artist that did it i'm sorry y'all but there was uh there's a video that someone posted in from alt space and it had like it had this you know bass music playing and it had um it had this avatar that looked like a like a mask and it was like moving through this moving through a space um that was it was just very fascinating to watch that here is this avatar that doesn't really have much resemblance to a humanoid figure, but still was very expressive and moving in a space that also, you know, had this, had this music. So these are things I want to experiment with more. Brandon, how about for you? What are, what about, how's your practice evolving? Yeah, I think, you know, with that question, for me, I was thinking about it from a little bit of a different perspective and more about how just my practice in general has evolved to incorporate this idea of translation across teams, right? And and it's had me really rethink and take stock in the knowledge that I have as a, as a creative and uh, all the background in movement and how it translates well into uh, this space um, and kind of empowered myself to feel uh like oh there's a lot you know i have to offer you know there's a lot sbs to offer a lot dasha has to offer here um in kind of relation to you know a lot of these methodologies and stuff we're we're sharing you know if if folks out there don't have that knowledge per se you know there's thousands of people you know across the country if not across the world as well that you know are specialists in all these ideas so uh, I feel like my practice has really transformed because I've gone from not just being the creator, but also to being the community builder uh, and trying to host more conversations like this uh, and being a part of a variety of different communities from um, Musical Theater Factory, where I lead a program called MTFXR, where we're merging musical theater and XR, or with Fifth Wall Forum, um, another group that got together to create new work in this space, which you might have heard about on a previous podcast here. 
Um, and so I feel like just my transformation has now been into this like translator builder role, which has been really exciting. Well, it brings up an interesting thought of, um, yeah, I frame my own thoughts. Interesting. Brings up what I think is an interesting question, maybe a, a, a need that's identified here, which is the idea of bringing more specialists from other disciplines into this space. Uh, so that there can be more cross pollinization. Because I'm, I'm, as I'm hearing everyone talk, I'm thinking about how some of what we're talking about are some of the fundamental aspects of of theatrical training. I mean, mask work, at least in the program I went through, was was one of the early foundations of what we were doing. And here we are at the beginning of an industry, at the beginning of an artistic movement, and we're we're right back to, you know, you know. Over, over on the technical side, they're building the, the tools to create sculptures. And on this side, we're building the tools to create these, you know, Commedia dell'arte-like characters. And, you know, what other fundamental aspects of the built reality need to be drawn into XR so that, you know, we need the coders and we need all the script kitties to do what they do, but in order to create reality we need the experts in reality does that make sense to every am i just going yeah no yeah i don't know if anyone wants to riff on that so yeah no i think it makes total sense and uh it's something i'm like constantly advocating for especially you know from the movement perspective you know i'm you know, feel like every team working in XR should have a choreographer on their team. And I think that that should just become the normal in the same way that you need someone who writes script. You need someone who's focusing on the body. If you are trying to create a more empathetic experience in XR, you need to create a more embodied experience. And we are practitioners who literally have studied that. Um, And I think people get caught up a lot of the time with the word dance. Um, this is something kind of Dasha was uh, alluding to earlier, right? That like people think maybe a dance is like a ballet they've seen, right? It's this distant thing. It's the nutcracker. It's so you think you can dance, but actually like the ability to create movement in space um, doesn't need to be a piece of choreography, which is what those people I think think of the word dance as, right? Uh, and for me, it's been really delightful to be a part of those teams uh, in a project I worked on this past couple of years called Queer Skins Arc, which has a big movement component and a part of it, one of the most fun and also challenging parts of the process was, you know, early on when I was talking with my collaborators, uh, Ilya Siliak and Cyril Sobolski, you know, I was saying, okay, we're going to move the audience this way, and then the dance is going to push them in a certain direction, they're going to rotate, and they're like, we don't know what they're going to do, and like, we don't know how people are going to move, and I'm like, actually like i'm here because i literally that's my job (laughs) you know like my job is to actually figure out how people i think are going to move inside of our experience uh to make it more successful so the more teams that have that i think the more successful those other experiences can be as well and to have an understanding of how actors can carve out space Mm -hmm. can also influence how spaces are built um, I think at times in VR, you know, the, you know, it's everything. You can see everything at the same time. Where is there a focus? There's no frame. And, you know, the frame is 
you know, that frame is that peripheral vision that we all love to despise. But that that <laughs> that that is the the frame that we we have in VR, and it continues to move each time people look around. Um, but how you shape what people look at and when that in itself is 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 choreographed, yeah. and so that also. It, it everything comes together, how the space is built, what elements are there, the sound that's there, the movement that's there, the actors, and everything just comes together with that. I, I always... It makes me think of what when we were uh, when we were rehearsing the Tempest um, in VR, the the spaces were still being built as we were rehearsing the show because of the how quickly we had to put up the show and. It, felt at first like it was going to be a thing that was a bad thing but it actually turned out to be wonderful because the actors could give contributions in terms of like you know the experience of being in that space and what it's like to play in the space and give constant feedback and troubleshooting so I actually think that bringing in the actors earlier when you're creating an experience in VR um, if it's possible could actually give you a lot of other ideas and things to add and um, and also fix some bugs before your audience uh, has to or gets to experience them. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that's also something to think about as well, if possible, as there, you're building. There was, mm-hmm. a, there was a thing that came up in the first segment where we were talking about, you know, uh, alt space and horizon letting you kind of build space, you know, inside the app itself versus you know, VR chat kind of requiring someone to be on the outside. Um, and, and they, they definitely feel like the difference that feels to me like the difference between working in like a black box theater with some, some cubes and, you know, working on like a fully built set, but that rehearsal hall where you've got those cubes and you've got like, you know, the table from the prop shop and like nothing looks the way it's supposed to look, but you start to figure out the feel and the flow of the blocking and where people can kind of improvise in the moment in order to let things breathe. And it's, it's exciting to me that, some of those tools to to allow for that exploration are are already in existence. Mm-hmm. All right, absolutely, um, and yeah, we can go there. Yeah, mm-hmm. oh, <laughs> go, Brandon, go. <laughs> yeah, no, I was just gonna say to that point, like uh, quite simply, sometimes then being in the black box is an opportunity and more of an invitation than being in the fully built theater, right? And uh, folks who have not been through a rehearsal process uh, might not realize that, right? Because they are only used to seeing the end product. So they think that's what you want. But actually being able to build along the way sometimes is even better. Um, and that's where we can all learn from each other. Oh, yeah. Well, there's that. There's there's a whole... <laughs> that's a whole two-hour podcast in itself. But this as a whole is going to be an hour and a half podcast because we got three segments. So on that note, I want to thank Brandon and Dasha and SB for joining us for this segment. And we will catch you all on the next episode. Thank you. Thanks. Hi, I'm Stephanie Riggs, and I am here with Brendan Bradley. Hi, I'm Brendan Bradley. I'm an actor and a scrappy storyteller. 
Deirdre Lyons. Hi there, I am a VR actor and producer. And Tim Kashani. Hello, Tim here, and I am here to play. <laughs> I love it. All right. So thanks for joining again to talk a little bit more about what skills from other arenas or live performance disciplines translate into XR theatrical productions and really how. So a lot of people are going to be coming from traditional traditional backgrounds. And the question is, we start to evolve and invite these people from multiple different disciplines to play with us in the sandbox that is XR theater is, well, if I'm going to dive into this, what do, what skills do I already have that work in this space? So like looking at acting, for example, because I know, um, Brendan and Deirdre, you have, are both actors, um, classically. So when you're looking at maybe film or immersive theater, what are some traits from there that translate over into XR theater? Do you want to go first, Deirdre? <laughs> I guess so. We're both waiting for each other. Yes, of course. Um, so I, I've come from an immersive theater background. I think that uh, that that VR the VR platform is perfect for immersive theater. So you know, being able to take uh, take take that into the VR world is, is, is just a joy. You interact with the audience. There's a lot of improvisational skills that are needed. I do a lot of devised theater in, in the under presents because, you know, there's already a set. And so we build a storyline and a show around that. And tell um, us what you mean by devised theater. Oh, well, devised theater, meaning that you, you have a, a, a show that's not really written. It's more where you find yourself in a world so the the set is sort of like the set inspires it. So the the place that you're at inspires it, or the things that are told to you and inspire that. So it's very similar to improvisational theater, except for that you're you're actually in a in a set in a world, as opposed to just on a black box stage, uh, or with a with a, with some other actors. Um, we we do a lot of um, a lot of a lot of that and a lot of improvising when one of the audience comes up and just makes you a cupcake and you're like, okay, I'm going to take this cupcake and weave it into the story for, for, for our lovely audience members. I, I also have a dance background. So dealing with the avatars will, will remind people of dealing with, you know, like more, more like puppetry because of how they're put together. They're, they're rigged more like a puppet and they move more like a puppet your upper body's the more expressive part. So any kind of movement or puppetry, uh, background that you have can help translate these avatars into something more alive and uh, and uh, less less still because they can look really still and lifeless if you don't move and 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 keep moving even when you're listening. I'll echo all of that in the sense of like I feel like actors for many years we've kind of been almost made fun of for this idea that on our resumes there's a section called special skills which is all this other (laughs) random crap that we know how to do and in some ways it's like a cool conversation starter but now it is really embracing that idea of anything else that you may have kind of slogged or side hustled together over the years could be a really cool thing like i didn't grow up with video games but i can only imagine performers who have been active gamers who are now literally using joysticks to perform. Like, what a beautiful intersection of your passion, right? To be able to complement each other. 
Um, and I also just really think of this from the sense of, I think that actors and theater makers in general have an unfair advantage in the sense that we approach everything as iterative, right? Like you don't come to see the Hamlet, you come to see my Hamlet. And it means that there's less of a preciousness so that this show from night to night, or even this production from year to year, can have that variability. It can evolve, it can change, it can grow, we can get feedback, we can turn it around in real time and respond and try something new. And it takes away kind of the pressure that like, we have to nail it and we're not gonna show it to anybody until it's 100% ready. That kind of show must go on mentality in some ways is our secret weapon to be able to take on and try new things and new technologies the same way we would a new prop or a new piece of costume um, and decide whether it works for the performance or not. I'm like sitting here nodding along. Yes, 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 all of this. Uh, Tim, you've helped several projects get off the ground all the way from like development into production. From Do you have like a bird's eye view of the kind of skills that translate, whether it's across producing design, directors you've worked with? I'll give you an analogy that will hopefully maybe explain it without just a single word. But when I, I've been working in this space since late 80s, 90s, when it wasn't even really a space, I was an actor whose dad said, get a real degree. So I got a computer science degree and live these two different lives where I would go to a dance audition up at Debbie Reynolds dance studio, quickly throw on a suit and then go build a system for Southern California Edison in the computer <laughs> world. And as I moved into directing, one thing that that Brendan said really struck home is I actually, when I look at a resume, the first place I look are the special skills because I'm looking at the people and as cliche as it sounds, projects live or die by the people that are associated with them. And it, it, it is that team. And when you work in this XR space, you amplify that because we don't have the same level of experience that we might in the film or theatrical world to just fall back on and quickly hire somebody if we lose a person that we've brought into our team. And thus, I, I hear people say all the time, well, I, I don't know if I want to work with that actor because I don't know if they're, quote, technical enough. And I, I laugh at that because if the actor has to be so technical to be in your show, you're doing something incorrectly as a producer or a director mm -hmm. because we should be stripping that away so that they can create characters. And that, when you ask me about getting projects off the ground, it's usually the first one or two people that are leading that project that I can point to and I know, yep, that one's going to get traction. Or I go, oh, that one will probably be in theory for a long time and will die. I won't mention any names, but there are those doers and the ones in our industry continue to be doing and doing. That you bring up a really good point of the team being critical to success. And I know we're talking like what skills translate, but maybe less tangibly, what kind of people skills, what kind of personalities, what kind of um, uh, dispositions are necessarily necessary for success in this field? Oh, can I jump in on that one? Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> because what uh, Brendan said about show must go on attitude. If you choose to work in this arena, that um, you have to be ready for imperfection because it's just 
there are technical issues that will happen that are beyond your control. And you have to be able to roll with the punches to be able to, to be able to accept that, guess what? Your fellow actor just fell off of their Wi-Fi and are now gone and you have to vamp until they can get back to where, where they were. It's, it's, it's a, a place where you have to allow, allow for imperfections and embrace it and, uh, and, and continue on. And as Brendan often says, scrappy storyteller, because, you know, you have to be able to, to put it out there and just keep going. If I can just echo that, there's a radio producer in Los Angeles, Eric Scott Smith, and his big lecture to me 10 years ago that kind of taught me everything I know about even just podcasting or even entertainment at this point is the show never goes wrong. It just goes fun. And so letting... <laughs> the imperfections and the flaws and the mistakes. Like when I think of theater in general, and especially now that we're trying to put kind of a currency on buying a ticket versus VOD, um, because we now have at our fingertips, like a golden era of streaming content in the pre-recorded market. When I think about the shows that stuck with me, it's when things went totally off. And I was part of that experience. I was there on the night that Cherry Jones lost her lines and shouted, bring me the book. And they literally brought her the damn script and she read it. Or Jasper Britton being unable to stop laughing in The Tamer Tamed. And we literally like leapt to our feet and gave a standing ovation in the theater because we were part of that experience. Or the History Boys uh, opening night at the National, getting on their hands and knees and cleaning water off the stage floor because the fire sprinklers went off and literally like jumping from show into cleaning mode back into show and those are the memories that i have that made a night at the theater truly magical it was in some ways not hiding the magic trick but revealing it that perfectly personifies the type of people that you're looking for i will do any show, anytime, any place with James Monroe Eigelhart. We were doing Memphis back back in the day at the Schubert Theater, and about 15 minutes into the show, the entire soundboard went off. We were shooting B-roll that night. I was back with the cameras, standing next to the sound person, and I said, how long till we're up? He said, probably anywhere from 15 minutes to an hour. And I said, what can I do to help? And he said, well, you have to have a tech this. I said, just trust me. And he threw me a board. We started working on that. And James jumped on stage and did a 15, 20-minute improv session. Nobody had to ask him to do it. He just did it. These are the type of people when you work with in this environment, you're going to come up with something. It may not look like what you thought it was when you started, but you are going to come up with something. <laughs> Those are great stories. And it almost makes me wonder, you know, with, with theater, when people have trained and gotten to the level of Broadway or gotten, you know, to some level of commercial success, they have years and years and years under their belt, which is not something that many performers in this nascent industry have. So as people start looking at this and saying, okay, I'm willing to make mistakes, but I don't know how to recover from them. Or if that does happen, like you're just saying, where, you know, somebody loses Wi-Fi in like while everybody's live is how, how do we, how do we find that same sense of, comfortability in owning the moment when we just don't necessarily know what's going to go wrong. 
I personally think in some ways what you're speaking to perhaps, Stephanie, is in many ways as a performer and simultaneously a producer, director, writer, like wearing all these hats. I feel like over the years, from a talent perspective, we kind of have misidentified some terms in casting of like what we're looking for. Like people talk about that, like it factor or that talent or like they've just got it. Right. And I think that we attribute that to like this incredible depth of like crying on command or something, or, you know, like in some ways we're taking this like layperson. how do we define acting? But instead I think it's that inherent confidence and comfort in the moment, in the stillness, in the uncertainty, the tension, and just being able to live truly in the discomfort of the story wherever it goes, that they are literally able as a performer to trust the journey. And I think that that translates to life, that translates to every medium. I think that having comfort with failure, and I think that performers just get a lot more failure and a lot more rejection probably um, on kind of a, a regular basis, Um you know, in some ways, most people I think have like five jobs in their lifetime. And I think I have five jobs a month. So um, <laughs> I, I think that in some ways, that's what you're trying to capture is the comfort of uncertainty, which can be applied to applications we have yet to experience. So when we enter these new mediums, it's like, to, to Tim's great story, if you're able to jump on stage live in front of a group of people without a soundboard, you're probably also willing to figure out your controllers and log back in. <laughs> well, you bring up this point of multi-hyphenate. You all are multi-hyphenates, actors, producers, um, investors, uh, directors. And in moving into this new space, it seems almost everybody Ha- almost has to be a multi-hyphenate. Does, do you have to have multiple skills? Do you, as an actor, need to understand uh, the basics of the technology? Do you need that um, in order to be successful in this field? Yes. Tim, Deirdre, you guys agree? <laughs> I think it's just a willingness to just get in there and figure it out. I'll, I'll say it's an it depends leaning towards yes, like Brendan stated. And it really depends on which aspect you're working on. So if you are a director or a producer, big yes with exclamation points on there. As you work your way down, for example, I have worked with people that come from a more traditional costume design who maybe don't know how to use 3D rendering software and don't want to blend or Maya but they have a good communication process with somebody who does do that in the same way a costume designer might work with an associate during the execution process. But as you work your way up, especially in the earliest stage, the it is a big yes of the multi-hyphenate. Yeah. And a lot of what I find is you don't necessarily need to be able to code, but you need to be conversant. So able to communicate with them and understand what they're saying, um, even if you aren't the one you know, typing in the code, per se. I'm stealing conversant. That's beautiful. <laughs> I think that I get suspicious of anyone, like if I'm talking to a performer and they won't even try TikTok, right? There's just an unwillingness to even, like, you don't have to like TikTok and you don't have to make a channel, like, but trying it and knowing, oh, that serves me or that that's part of my brand or that's not. I think it's the willingness to explore and ideate and try and, to your point, kind of identify where your blind spots are and then identify the things that you're drawn towards so that you at least know for your process, 
okay, I don't know, I'm not good at that, so I'm going to need support. Or, oh, I love doing this. If you give me the football, I can run it. 100% agree. And people will ask me, they say, how can you be involved in the startup world in Silicon Valley and Broadway and film? And I say, they're all the same thing. You're starting with an idea and you are creating a team that is going to execute that idea. What that idea looks like at the beginning may look completely different at the end. But if you have the right team and the stars align with timing and funding and those other things, that's where the magic happens. And you can't do it all yourself either. I mean, you know, you you say we're uh, multiple hyphenates, but no one can know enough about everything to be able to do something, all of it proficiently. So yes, having a team that can help to, uh, to divide and conquer, you know, somebody's really drawn and good at this particular aspect and somebody else is really good and drawn to this particular aspect. You know, they go that way, they go that way, but you, you talk to, you talk about it to make sure that you're, everyone's on the same path, but everyone works to their strengths. And there is a, there is a culture around the industry right now. I was, I made a a joke and A few people got it. I said, it feels like we're back in the homebrew computing club. And I was actually a little young even for that, but I knew of it. And some people thought, well, what's he talking about? If you don't know, look it up. But the idea back then in the computing industry was sharing. And there's an old docuseries by Robert Cringely called Triumph of the Nerds that depicts that and shows how when we were solving the age of building these first personal computers, and you look at the Wozniaks of the world, they just wanted to be part of something bigger to themselves, and they were willing to share. And if there's any advice I can give anybody, it's the personal skills that lead towards success. If you have somebody that comes in it with positive attitudes, and they're going to find solutions, they're going to be your friend. So I always say, look for people that solve problems. That's it. And maybe in their special skills set, they'll say that they are C-sharp conversant. Never hurts. (laughs) (laughs) Well, any last thoughts, you guys, on um, what skills from other areas or disciplines translate into live XR theatrical productions? I'll volunteer that I think that live is really a magical concept. Now it's kind of having its own re-identification now that everything is virtual and we are kind of determining between something what what comes to us on our screens or our ears is all it feels the same but there is the distinction between whether it's happening in real time or not and i i think that theater particularly has the unfair advantage of being immersed in a a tradition a ritual a, a comfort with live And I think the faster and more reliable the technology, the more we have to rely on minimizing human error, which means that theater might be a perfect kind of test case or sandbox for the XR space to start playing. I think that in a lot of ways, the accident that happened with 360 video is we said, oh, it's a camera, so it's cinema. And in a lot of ways, 360 was about telling the audience where to look, not with the edit or the cut with a frame, but instead using more practical stagecraft from theater of like how to turn someone to a specific area with sound or light or stage picture. And I think if this moment can give us anything 
as we enter these new technologies and workflows, maybe really borrowing from traditional stagecraft that we've been doing for thousands of years as really the means to kind of communicate if we have reliable, great technology that we're bringing humans that are minimizing the ability for error. And I think that goes to like the open source community that Tim is talking about, um, which just by me putting out like YouTube tutorials, I then have people like sending me plugins on like DMs being like, hey, have you tried this? And I'm like, that's awesome. And so there is that great culture of abundance and share early, share often, which I think then leads to us paying it forward in our educational institutions. I think that our conservatory arts programs, particularly in America, have often forgotten to take a 21st century approach. We are still teaching acting and filmmaking, often with the lens towards the historical implications of those crafts, rather than the horizon of where we're headed. And I, I think like every BFA program in the country should be doing like motion capture and volumetric and like figuring that out now, because it also teaches you how to collaborate within those projects with people with different skill sets. Absolutely. That's a whole podcast onto itself. And I couldn't agree more, by the way. Well, Brendan, Deirdre, Tim, thank you so much for sharing your experiences on this so we can get get a little peek behind the curtain. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Once again, I want to thank our guests and especially our guest hosts, Stephanie and Catherine, for helping us put all this together today. Check out the show notes and you will find everyone's Twitter handles so you can start your journey, follow your favorites, find where they are, and uh, maybe discover some brand new VR theater for your viewing pleasure. I don't know where I'm going with this. It's late. I'm tired. Um, I'm recording this at night because we got meetings in the morning. All right, check it out. Uh, this is usually the part of the show where I get to do a little song and dance rant thing. I go off on whatever I'm feeling about this week. I actually channel that into a thing we do over on the Patreon called the irregular, which is, uh, oftentimes a behind the scenes look for, uh, the Patreon backers. Um, that it's, it's not, it's, it's a, it's a minor feature. Um, it doesn't happen all that regular, hence the irregular title. And sometimes it's deeply personal. Uh, just try and keep that part out of this part of the feed. But uh, I did want to note, uh, there are some rumors going around today because of Bloomberg about, uh, Apple VR, uh, or Apple getting into VR. Everyone's already in say Apple VR, the IR, the IVR. Um, I, I I talk a little bit about it in the irregular, um, and I'm going to talk about it uh, even less here, mostly just to say, uh, and I think I said this on the irregular. Uh, you know, they uh, they've been they've been they've been looking at making a car for years, for years and years and years. If Apple gets into this space, that's almost certainly going to be a good thing. Um, I, I'm looking forward to seeing what their designers would do with spatial computing and spatial experiences. I definitely would. Great admirer of Apple. This is being recorded on a MacBook right now. Uh, with that said, uh, I never take any predictions of this nature serious. 
not until leaks start coming off the factory. When the factory leaks happen, then we can have a nice big conversation about what's going to do the market. Or when we start hearing about people working on things, reporting things, right? Um, you know, frankly, I guess if they are going to do something that big and there's going to be porting, uh, here's something I didn't talk about on the irregular, that'll probably happen at WWDC. Um, I don't know what the plans for that are this year. It's usually in like June or something, like in the middle of the middle of the year is when WWDC is. I can't remember. Uh, that's that's when they announce their OS uh, upgrades. So there's a chance we might hear uh, about something ahead of time. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, just let's just wait. Let's wait. Plenty, plenty to be excited about right now in general. Okay. That's enough from me. That's enough from us. As always, we do need to thank our backers before we head out for the weekend. The sustaining backers are no proscenium are the people who bring you this show. They are Malk, yeah, Mark Baltazar, Jan Budman, Paul F., Sidney Guillory, Lonnie Hanson, Ari Hurston, Emily Gillette, Samuel Mustry, Brittany and Elaine, thank you all. The music for No Persinium is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society. My name is Noah Nelson. And until next time, thank you for wearing the mask. 